Let's take our Bibles tonight and go. First John <laughs> chapter 1. That's where we're going to be at here tonight. Uh, we, there were, there were, there was a handout. There were a handout. There was a handout, so if you didn't get that, uh, you got them here, Kyson. Go pass those out, and uh, that would be great. Uh, try every week to put those on the back table there so you can grab them. If you don't get one, then we'll have Kyson uh, pass them out. He always does a great job with that, and uh, that'll just kind of streamline things. While he's doing that, just by way of reminder also, we are doing our prayer request a little bit differently and so if you did not um, get a, a prayer request form filled out and you have a prayer request tonight, uh, at the end of the service we'll have someone kind of run those around real quick. Uh, we're going to kind of try to get everyone in the habit of that over a few weeks uh, where they can have them done. Several people have already filled some out. If you have one on your person, we'll collect those at the end of the service as well. Uh, Lord willing, we'll have a box put in out there, a little drop box where you can uh, drop prayer requests, and then that'll be an easy collection point for those in the future. Uh, just streamlines things, and uh, really looking forward to the new format and how we're going to be doing that. I think it's going to help tremendously. Okay, 1 John chapter number 1 and verse number 5. Found your place there and you're able to, let's stand together uh, as we read God's Word here this evening. 1 John chapter number 1, <clears throat> and our text tonight is verse number 5, but just for flow of thought and continuity, let's just start reading there in verse number 1. <clears throat> The first epistle here of John in verse number 1 of chapter 1 reads this way, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full." This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. So I'd like to uh, preach to you tonight on, on this subject, sin, the barrier to God. Now, I'll, I'll say this from the, the onset. Tonight, we're going to lay a lot of groundwork. Next Wednesday is going to be um, a life-changing sermon. Okay, so it's kind of a part one, part two thing here. Tonight we're going to lay some groundwork, 
And next week we're going to talk about this. You have one of two options with your sin, which is a barrier to God. You're either going to confess it or you're going to conceal it. It's revolution. It would change, if you allow it to, I believe it would change your life. Not because of who's delivering the message, but because of the power that is in the scriptures. And so if you'll stick with me here tonight, uh, I believe this will be a help to you. But just understand this is kind of phase one. And next week is kind of a big delivery of application. Okay, so may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. And thank you for standing in honor of the scriptures uh, here tonight. Now, throughout history, barriers have been erected to impede and even stop people from getting in. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the Romans who built Hadron's Wall uh, in Britain. And uh, just kind of show you some pictures of some of these barriers that have been built. Uh, This is what it looks like today. But if you see some pictures of what it looked like back during the Roman Empire, quite impressive and Quite an amazing wall that was built there by the Romans there in Britain. The Nazis during World War II built the Atlantic Wall along the western coast of Europe during World War II. And obviously during the uh, largest sea invasion that's ever taking place, uh, Operation Neptune there on D-Day, where they stormed those beaches, they were penetrating that Atlantic Wall that had been set up by Hitler and the Nazis. The Soviet Union built the Berlin Wall, and some of y'all are uh, old enough, you remember that and everything that happened with that, and Gorbachev tear down this wall and everything that took place with Eastern and Western uh, Berlin there. What about this one? Probably a pretty famous barrier and famous wall, the Great Wall of China. This is some 15 to 30 feet in width and some portions of it. Some of the more famous portions of the wall are 15 to 30 feet in width. And some are about 25 feet high. But here's the impressive thing. Even the parts of the wall that aren't so big and wide, but the whole length of it is around 13,000 miles. It's just baffling. Uh, over multiple dynasties, all that was done to build that wall. Now, we don't have a, a picture of this. I guess I could put a picture of Donald Trump up there. But uh, he, he hopes to build the greatest wall that's ever been built, right? That's a terrible impression of him. But uh, barriers that are built, right? We understand that. Sometimes, even personally, we erect barriers of our own to prevent something from getting into our lives. Uh, like <clears throat> your house. Uh, I grew up in a home where we never locked our doors my parents just had a death wish, I guess. Um, and so they were like, well, if someone's going to break in, I'd rather they not tear up the door, too. <laughs> They're going to get in one way. When you live in the country, nobody sees, you know. And so that was their mentality behind it. But uh, my wife grew up in a family that was not that way. And so uh, when you get in our house, it's like a vault. it got every lock and buzzer and sensor on it. And there ain't nobody getting in our house without everybody in the United States knowing about it. But we erect barriers in our house, right? We have doors. We have locks. Uh, in our yards, oftentimes we put up fences uh, because we have barriers, whether we want to keep a dog or something in, a child, <laughs> you want to keep them in, uh, or you're trying to keep something out from getting into your yard that you don't want in there. Uh, even our computers and technology and stuff, we put barriers on those, antivirus and protection and VPNs, and we set up a digital barricade to keep out things that shouldn't be in there. 
Unfortunately, uh, although barriers can be a good thing, they also can be a very negative thing in our life. And um, people can erect barriers between relationships, like there can be barriers between spouses. A husband and wife aren't where they need to be, and there's a barrier there, a separation that ought not be there. A parent and a child, and there's separation and a barrier that's established between them. But more uh, awful than that, something that's worse than even a relationship of a husband and wife or with children or friendships or church members. What about this relationship that a barrier can exist between of us and God Almighty? That there is a barrier, and we understand the purpose of a barrier, to keep things out, right? Or keep things in. If there is a barrier that is erected between us and God so that the fellowship is broken, that we do not have connection with the Lord like we ought to. The greatest barrier that can block fellowship with God is sin. So much so that we could, we could say it this way. This is kind of a, the, the idea of the text here that John's going to bring before us, which is this. Sin is always a barrier between us and God. Always. When Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit there, they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, there then was a barrier, a place of separation that was put between them. Quite physically at that point, they were removed from the garden and there was an angel and a flaming sword placed in the gateway of that place that kept them from getting back in. They, were, they had broken fellowship with God and that was a very visual illustration of now all of human history that we have this broken, strained relationship with our Maker. Right? So sin is always a barrier. It is the greatest barrier that will block fellowship between man and God. Now, just by way of review, to make sure we're kind of all on the same page uh, with where we've been uh, in our series so far here. Um, so you got in your notes there just kind of by way of review and kind of working through this. So at this point, John is, is an old man. Uh, he's not quite... Uh, been outcast to the island of Patmos where he's going to write the book of the Revelation. Right now he's currently living in Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So just kind of give you an idea map-wise of where this location is at. And so this had become, and still is to this day, kind of a, a major traffic area between Europe and, of course, the Middle East and, and Asia. And so this main area of flow of thoughts and ideas and goods and services became a melting pot of multiple languages, cultures, and religions. Now, even in first century Christianity, uh, there started to be this melting pot of all these weird ideas. So one of the things that started to become a, a big thought process there was let's all just get along and meld all our beliefs together, and this was called syncretism. Now, syncretism is like, let's just take all our stuff, you believe this, you believe that, you believe that, you believe that, you believe this, well, let's just get a little bit of all of it and just mix it all together and it'll taste yummy and delicious. Okay, that's not a good idea. It never has been. It never will be, right? There, there's truth, and then there's falsehood. You can't mix the two and produce something good. And so in our day and age, there would be what's called ecumenicalism, which is just the idea of, well, we all believe in Jesus, right? So let's all just 
drop all this doctrine stuff and just all get together and just all be Christian. It sounds good in theory until you start learning and understanding what these other groups that claim Christ actually believe. They, those who absolutely outright deny the deity of Christ and believe salvation is by works and all kinds of crazy beliefs that are out there. Now, this is no new thing. And so, obviously, this is something that was going on during John's day. Now, it appears that some had left the church to pursue the meddling of these false doctrines. And so, later on in the book, John would write this in 1 John 2.19. He would say, they went out from us. Speaking about those who now are believing these false doctrines and have now bought into the syncretism and they're taking a little bit of what Paul taught and John taught and Peter and then mixing it with all these false beliefs. And so he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Which John's point there was basically saying this, because they have left the gospel, it's evidence that they never were a part of the gospel. Now, that's a whole other subject. We'll get there when we get to chapter 2 uh, about what John is talking about there. So we don't know exactly who this group was that left, but we do know there were early rearings of heads of a group known as the Gnostics that were around at this time. Now, just, again, just by way of review, I'll just go through this quickly here about what the Gnostics believe. The Gnostics simply mean this. The body and material things are bad. They're always evil. So if it's physical, if it's fleshy, if it's of this earth, it's evil. It doesn't matter what it is. It's all bad. If it's spirit, it's good. It's right. It's beneficial. Deep thinking, enlightenment. Those are the goal. So body and flesh are bad. Spirit is good. Now, with this, they of course then would deny the deity of Jesus or deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. They say, well, he wasn't really born of a virgin and he wasn't really God in the flesh. He was just possessed of God. Because anything of the flesh is evil. And of course, that's heresy. The third part on this is the body and soul are disconnected. Thus, anything done in the body doesn't affect your soul. Which would kind of be the idea of this. Sin all you want. Who cares? Because what's in your body is separate from your spirit. And the spirit's all good and the body's all bad. So who can deny you doing bad things in your body? It's not going to affect your spirit. There are two different things. Now again... That's not right thinking. I'm just telling you what the Gnostics believed. Now, since their goal was enlightenment and deep thinking, they were arrogant, prideful, and loveless. Now, this again has crept back in to a lot of circles of Christendom where there's an element of higher thinking or there's this element of enlightenment and I just want to develop my mind and my spirit and know more about it of where there's pride and arrogance. Now, anywhere you find pride... It stinks in the nostrils of God. Amen. God does not uh, favor kindly pride. And so anything that would engender that attitude is obviously not of the Lord. Now, one thing we didn't talk about last week, but another group that was around besides the Gnostics, 
Another group that was around that would have been a part of this melting pot uh, that we're going to deal with some over the next couple weeks was a group known as the Antinominalist. Now, some of you all will be like, wow, this is going to bless my soul. Okay, uh, we went through the book of James uh, some time ago. And uh, if you remember, uh, James emphasizes heavily in his book that evidence of salvation is works. Not in order to be saved, but it's an evidence or a fruit that someone has been saved. And people have argued for decades now, uh, they have argued the fact Paul preaches salvation by grace and James preaches salvation by works and they're contrary one to the other. And to that I would say, no, 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 no. They, they both, both Paul and James, stand firmly on the biblical foundation that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus alone, plus nothing, minus nothing. The problem was there were false doctrines and false beliefs that they were combating and confronting in those books. Paul and Galatians and Ephesus, some of the other books, where he really emphasizes grace and liberty that's found in Christ. He's fighting those known as the legalist. Legalist is somebody who adds works to salvation. Whereas James is over here and he's fighting another front, and this would be the antinominalist. Now, antinominalist simply means this, they're against the law. The antinominalist would be the opposite of the legalist, and then they would say this, easy believism is the word we would use today. Now, granted, I'm going to be very clear about this. Salvation is simple. Overcomplicate this. How, how's a person get saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Amen. That's it. Again, salvation is so simple. When Jesus was explained to the other, he brought a little child up and he says, have faith like this kid. Well, what does a kid have faith in? Well, you could tell a kid crazy stuff like, hey, let's go fishing and we'll find coins in the belly of a fish. Awesome, let's do it. Right? And we might call that gullible, but what it's childlike trust in somebody they've learned to rely on. And so Jesus brought a child up there and says this, have faith like this kid in order to be saved. That, that's what salvation looks like. It's simply not having to have all your ducks in a row and having to have it all figured out. Because if you try to figure out everything about salvation before accepting salvation, you're going to be waiting a while. I'm still trying to figure out everything I got in salvation the day I got saved. And the Amen. more I learn, the more I like it. Amen. But I'm thankful as a little kid, I didn't have to understand the hypostatic union of Christ and have to understand all the doctrinal truths of everything with salvation. All I had to simply do was this. I want forgiveness of my sin. Jesus died for my sins. I believe Jesus rose from the grave. I trusted Him for salvation. Belief. That's it. The problem is there's groups out there that want to distort and manipulate the gospel. Now, we want to be careful with the word heretic because there are some people we call heretics that aren't necessarily heretics. But if somebody messes with the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the gospel, how somebody gets saved, the true definition of what they are, they're a heretic. Yes. Now, those that were Gnostic and those that were legalist and those that were antinomalous were messing with the gospel and John says, not on my watch. You guys need to know that this is what was received from the beginning, which we felt with our hands and we saw with our eyes and we heard with our ears and we experienced the earthly ministry of that which was the word of life, the gospel, Jesus Christ. 
And he says, we didn't keep that to ourselves. We shared that with you all. We talked about that last week, that he says, you need to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that your joy may be full. Remember last week? You ever pull your phone out and look for your phone with your phone with the flashlight? As Christians, sometimes there's people looking for joy when it's right in front of your face. It's Jesus. Jesus equals joy. I mean, that really is the summation of it. So here's Paul and here's James, and they're fighting the same battle on different fronts. You have the legalist that's over here saying, work in order to be saved. But the antinominalist is over here, the easy believism, they're saying this. Well, you don't want to go to hell, do you? Well, no, no. Okay, well, one, two, three, repeat after me. Okay, they don't know who Jesus is. They don't know about the gospel. What did they just put faith in? Okay, you see the danger on both sides of this thing? I've heard of people that are like, we repeated the day of Pentecost. We set out that morning with 200 people, and we were going to see 1,000 people saved. Now, that's a great goal, but what does that look like? In theory, it sounds great, but here's what I've seen. We reached our goal. We saw a thousand people saved. Three of them got baptized, and none of them are in church now. Yeah. Wait, you mean the regenerative work of Christ happened in an individual's life? I understand some of the people get saved and that they never follow. But that many? Come on. Well, what happened there? Well, we're falling into the trap of what the antinomalist said, where I think there's some diligence that needs to be taken that we need to sit down with people and explain the gospel. Now, that doesn't have to be, again, we don't have to give them all the doctrine of what all it is, but there needs to be more than a two-minute conversation. You sit down. Somebody has to get lost before they can get found. Share the gospel with them. Yeah, absolutely. And so here John is uh, obviously addressing in this book that there were those who were confused and doubting their salvation because there were people that were messing with the doctrine of salvation. So that's really the whole theme of what's going on here in the book of 1 John. Now, John begins to refute and deal with some of these ideas, these false beliefs that were out there. So we're going to deal with this that he deals with here tonight. Now, obviously, John's primary purpose in penning this book was to encourage believers to identify what's real so they would identify the counterfeit. Here's the real gospel. That's a fake, that's a fake, that's a fake, that's a fake, that's a fake. Okay, he wants them to understand the gospel. Now, here's the first one um, of the gospel that we're going to deal with here. Okay, God is light, which simply means this. He has zero darkness in him. Light is the absence of darkness. For something to be light means it has no darkness. So, again, we have to make this, again, this is the word that John gives us here is this, which is that God is light, which simply means this, you will not find one speck of any darkness in him. Okay? God is light, but light here is also an example or an analogy of righteousness and purity. So we say this, light in this text, deals with righteousness, purity, whereas obviously darkness would be the other side of that, wouldn't it? We understand that Jesus simply saying that he is light 
goes beyond just the, the, the physical manifestation of light and the absence of darkness. By God saying that He's light, He's also saying this, I'm pure, I'm righteous, I'm without fault, I'm without sin. Whereas darkness, we would say this, darkness is sin, fault, death, destruction, absence of light. All of those things are there. Now, <clears throat> there's nothing... Um, you ever walk through your house at night before without the lights on? Now, my wife has a knack with her little pinky of finding every piece of furniture in our house. That's really painful, isn't it? And you catch the pinky and it's just like... <sighs> Me, I do what this guy does. And I step on every toy our child owns. And so you're walking through the house in the middle of the night and then that wonderful thing happens where you step on a Lego, especially. I don't know what those things are made out of, but that plastic is the most deadly thing that has ever existed. It's super painful. It is not very fun to do that and step on that. Now, here's what we say with this. We need light, not simply because it's light, but when the lights are on, it brings clarity. It brings truth. It illuminates things that otherwise were unclear to us. Right? Okay, so light and the absence of darkness helps us navigate. It helps us understand what's coming up. It helps us get truth. Oh, what I thought this was in the darkness, now I see clearly is different. Okay, those are all things that light brings. Light illuminates and clarifies. In Psalm 119.105, it says this, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. John 3, verses 19 through 21, it says this, And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Now, what is he saying here? He's simply saying this, that there is clarity and truth and, and life that is found in light. The, okay, we're just trying to draw a distinction here. Light is not just the physical manifestation of light. It goes far beyond that of purity and righteousness and clarity and truth and illumination. In a commentary, I'll put this up on the screen here for you. Stott said this, the effect of the light is not just to make people see, but enable them to walk. Right conduct, not just clear vision, is the benefit which light bestows. That's a great statement. Well, what light does is it does this. When we have light, now we know clearly what's right and what's wrong, what's true and what's a lie and where I need to go and where I don't need to go. <clears throat> Now, again, this is, we'll hammer this home next week because it's a payoff, part two next week. I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of this. I'm thankful for the Word of God that is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. Wherein shall a young man cleanse his ways and, and be right with God? By taking heed thereto according to thy Word. I, I'm so grateful for the Scriptures because the more you look in the Scriptures, the more you understand like a mirror... What James would say was a mirror, the more you start to understand, wow, I'm not as good looking as I thought I was. Yeah. I don't mean that personally. <laughs> I'm talking about you. No, I'm just kidding. The more you look into it, you go, well, 
I thought this was okay in my life, and the Bible says it's not. I thought this is where I need to be going. It's not. What is it? It's light. It illuminates truth. Amen. It gives us direction. It, now, listen, this is the written word, but Jesus is the living word. Right? John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Okay? Now, listen, I, I'm thankful for the light that is the scriptures and the light that is Jesus Christ. It's not just for us to see. It helps us know what's right and wrong, and it gives life-bestowing direction. Now, the fact that God is completely light comes with the opposite truth, that in Him is no darkness at all. Darkness is that which is sinful, hidden, or at least attempts to be hidden. We'll look at that next week. One day your sin will be found out. You might think you did a good job hiding it, but be sure your sin will find you out. It's false and it's lacking light. A simple study of the attributes and character of God will reveal that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Let me just go through these here quickly. I know you've got these blanks here. He is truth, which means this. There are no lies within him. God cannot speak a lie. God cannot be false. He will only give that which is true. There's also this. He's righteous. He will do that which is right and holy. No sin is in him. I'm thankful we don't have like these old pagan made-up gods like Zeus and Poseidon and all them. If you ever study the mythology and some of these other religions that are out there, their gods are jerks. <laughs> they were more messed up than the humans were. I'm thankful we serve the living God who had, does no sin, but is imperfect and righteous in all that He does. Amen. He is clarity, and God is no deceit. All his ways are equitable, pure, and transparently holy. He is in the light, as verse 7 would tell us. If we walk in the light, we'll be in the light, because he is in the light, so we can be in the light. And can in no way go contrary to his very essence and nature. The fact that God is light means he is all of these things and more. If God is light and has no fellowship with darkness, then it makes sense that those who claim to have fellowship with Him would have to be in the light, not darkness. Now again, not trying to develop something here that's not there, but fellowship with Christ mandates that we are in the light. If I'm going to claim to be with Christ... By default, if he is light and in him is no darkness, to be in him, to be with him, is to be in and with the light, not to be in darkness. Now, don't, don't get too far ahead of me here, okay? You are thinking five steps ahead and you go, oh, hold on, preacher, you're sinless perfection. Okay, we're not talking about that. Stick with me here, I'll, we'll make all this clear. Now, verse number six, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it this way personally, but since it's in the Bible... That's the way it's supposed to be said. But here's what it is. A person who claims to have fellowship with God and yet continues in darkness 
is a liar. So that sounds harsh. Well, it's right there in verse number six. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and, the, and do not the truth. <laughs> what is he saying there? He's simply saying this. Somebody who claims to be in the light and yet all of their actions are darkness, they're lying. Now, again, I'm not trying to develop this more than it needs to be, but it amazes me some funerals that I attend. Now, again, I don't know what it is about our Western culture, but personally, I've heard of this happening, but personally, I have never been a part of a funeral where the person behind a lectern or pulpit or funeral home stand or whoever got up there and said, this guy was a low-down, sorry scoundrel who hated his family and hated God, and he's in hell today. I've never been in a funeral where that's happened. It usually gets laid on something like this. Well, he was just a good guy. And man, he did all these wonderful things in his life, and he was just a good old boy. And he, of course, didn't live like it, but he knew Jesus, amen. And he's in heaven today doing X, Y, Z. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not, I understand salvation. I'm not trying to make something other than, but I do want to be clear about what the scriptures say here, about what the text is given to us. Because we can come up with all kinds of exceptions to the rule. I mean, you could talk about the thief on the cross. His life was lived in shame and sin and wretchedness, and yet he died and was in paradise with God. Because salvation is not by our works, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. But here's where the hang-up comes with John. And remember, he's dealing with false beliefs that are out there. Primarily here, the Gnostics and the Antinominalist. Easy believism crowd and those who are just mixing everything together and what you do in the body doesn't matter. It's only what you do in your spirit. And so he's combating those false beliefs. And he comes in here and he says this, there's an issue with someone who claims to be in fellowship with the light but everything in their life is darkness. Now, again, as a pastor, I have an issue with this. Somebody who claims to know Christ, and yet every distinguishing marker of their life is that of an unbeliever. Yeah. Now, here's what John said. They're lying. Because there's no way that we can claim to have fellowship with light and yet every iota of our life be darkness. Now, uh, maybe uh, let me stick to my notes so I don't get way ahead of myself and mess up all the notes and everything. All right. John Stott said this uh, in his commentary, another one of these statements. I thought this was so good. We are right to be suspicious of those who claim a mystical intimacy with God and yet walk in the darkness of error and sin paying no regard to the self-revelation of an all-holy God. Religion without morality is an illusion. Now remember, the, the, the Gnostics said this, do whatever you want to do in your body, it doesn't matter. Sin, that grace may abound. What did Paul say about that in the book of Romans? God forbid, that's not the way this thing works. The Gnostics are out there saying, spirit good, flesh bad. You can't ever redeem your flesh, so just do whatever you want to do. 
live as bad as you want to live. They believed grace was made better by their gross sin. They wanted Christ but never really put their trust in Him. And it was evidenced by their dark deeds and their continued life in darkness. Now again, you can read the rest of 1 John chapter 1. We're going to do this next week. Because he says very clearly in verse number 8, if we say that we have sin, excuse me, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That sounds a little contrary to what he's saying here. No, no, no. Don't, don't miss what John is saying. We're not talking about sinless perfection here. You say, well, I'm not really saved because I sinned. Well, welcome to the club. You're a pastor. You sin every day. Try not to, right? Try to live righteous and holy. But I'm telling you, I struggle with the flesh. We live in a broken, fallen system of the world. And that old enemy of God, the devil, is not a friend of trying to live righteous and holy. Now listen, if you've lived any length of the Christian life, although it can become easier to live holy in an unholy world, we still walk in filth. And we still struggle with where our eyes look and what our ears listen to and what our mouth says and where our feet take us and what our hands do, right? And to our, despite our best efforts, we're going to sin. Now, I'm thankful God's given us everything we need to live a life free of that, but you never will achieve it. Right. <laughs> Not on this side of glory anyways. Now, does that mean we just give up and throw in the towel and never... No, no, no. We're going to deal with that next week, that there is a way of dealing with sin that God has given us, and I'm so thankful for that. But, but here's the, the point that John is making here. It's not that we are void of any sinfulness, but what he's saying is, here's where John's hang-up is. Somebody who claims to be in the light, and yet every part of their life is darkness, something's not jiving here. Something's not connecting here. For somebody to claim to be in the light and claiming to be a believer, and yet there is absolute zero evidence that there has ever been a change in them, we say this, something's suspect there. Something doesn't make sense. Something isn't being clear here because the Bible says when a person gets saved, they become a new creature. Their appetites changed. I've never seen somebody genuinely get saved and, and then them just say, well, that was nice. And then just go right back into the pits of sin and, and act like it's the next day of their life. You know, something radically changes in their heart. Now, listen, that doesn't mean they become super Christian overnight. There's a process of sanctification that needs to happen, but it does mean this. Their attitude towards that sin changes. Their destination eternally has changed. Their devotion has changed. Their attitude about it has changed. It's a huge difference. A claiming of fellowship with light and a love for darkness at the same time just don't go together. When we are in the light, there are two clear identifiers that are given to us in the text here. Verse number 7, it says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have. Which means this, if, we, if we're in the light, and we claim to be in the light, and we are in the light, then these are things that are kind of a part of being in the light. One, fellowship one with another. And because of that, fellowship with God. Okay, because we have fellowship one with another because we have fellowship with Him. So, somebody who claims to be in the light and yet hates those that dwell in the light, 
that's a concern for John. Because if I'm in the light, I want to be around people that love the light, right. not people that want to hide in darkness. So he says, that's one thing. Okay, number two. <clears throat> Cleansing from Christ's blood. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Again, we are not talking about a work-based salvation. But this is an anthem against the antinomalist. Notice that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now, we could preach a whole message right here. This is good. It didn't cleanse me from all sin. It is cleansing me from all sin. Christ's blood wasn't just efficient and effective enough to pardon me of the sins I had done. His blood is efficient and effective enough to cleanse me of all sins, past, present, and future. Which simply means this, there is an active work of God in your heart to perpetually and continually cleanse you. He cleanseth us from all sin. Now what's important about that is what we're going to deal with next week, which is simply this. Listen, when you got saved, you got saved all the way. Sins are completely forgiven. But sin constantly and always will be a barrier between us and God. And so because of that, because there's the cleansing work of salvation, then we need to confess our sins and cleanse ourselves so that we might have right fellowship with Him. Now that's what people in the light do. People in the light, when they sin, they confess it and forsake it. People who are unsaved, who live in darkness, could care less. They continue in that sin and dwell in darkness. The reality is, is that we need forgiveness and cleansing of the Lord all the time. Just look at 1 John 8-10, through 10, which we'll do uh, here next week. So we can skip those next slides there. We've read those verses a few times. Okay. So then the main point of this text is this. We call this the central idea of the text. We'll kind of briefen this down in the future week. CIT, central idea. This is what this passage is all about. John declares that those who walk in darkness do not have fellowship with Christ because Christ is light. So what does that mean for application? A couple things here. One is this. <clears throat> I and you do not have the ability to know who's saved and unsaved. I wish I had magic glasses that I could put on and know that's a believer, that's an unbeliever, and you just knew. But we don't. Just can't be. And one day, I'm thankful for this, God is the one who's going to sort out wheat versus tares, and He's the one who has the ultimate final decision on this. And there will be those who will stand before Him one day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done many works in Thy name? And He will say unto them, Depart from me, I never knew you. Now listen, that is not my job. As a pastor, not your job as a layperson or church member. It's not our job to walk around and determine, well, that person's saved, that person's unsaved, this person's regenerative. That's not what John's talking about here. Well, what is this passage doing? That ye may know. Work out your own salvation. These are some identifying things that we can look at our own life and say, am I regenerate or am I not? That's what this is meant for. So it's simply one of these things. I can't always know who's saved and who isn't, but I can do this. I can look at the fruit first in my own life, but also can identify fruit in someone else's life. There's somebody that I love, 
and they claim to be in the light, and yet every aspect of their life is darkness, I might confront them about that and say, I know you made a profession of faith, but did you really believe in Christ? Did you really put your faith and trust in Him? Now listen, again, that's not our determination to decide whether somebody's saved or unsaved. Listen, I, I genuinely I believe that there are those that are saved, that their life is out of church and they're not where they need to be with the Lord and they're messed up and whatever you want to say about it, and yet they're genuinely saved. But what John's saying here is he's giving us some evidence to say this. Somebody who claims to be in, in the light and yet their whole life is darkness, there's something that's not connecting there. Okay? The second point is this. Let me make some application. This will really come into effect next week, which is this. Sin is always a barrier to fellowship with God. Anytime you find sin, you'll find a barrier. Now, there's been some impressive barriers built by man, but there's not a barrier more aggressive at keeping out than sin will be of keeping you from having fellowship with God. And by default, fellowship with others. Now, it'll mess it up terribly. Let's all stand as we come to a time of invitation here.